Let's pray. Father, as we come and sit under the teaching of your word this morning, Lord, please help us once again to taste and see that you are good and that your word promises to do good to our souls. Lord, please stir up our appetites this morning for reading from the book of Psalms in the coming month. Please equip us, excite us, and minister to us in our need. And help us, Lord, to hear your voice, to trust in your promises, and to walk in your ways. And show us Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, This morning is an RBT Sunday. Uh, Quite shockingly, I have come up the front without my Bible this morning. Don't be too shocked, uh, because I brought up just my little book of Psalms, a clue as to what we're doing, which is an RBT through the book of Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms is the third longest book in the Bible, from a word count point of view, behind Jeremiah and Genesis. But we're only going to be reading about one quarter of it together this month. Uh, from Psalms 1 to 41. And also, we actually have about, I'm not sure the exact number, but about eight weeks to read before we'll actually be getting together in RBT groups. So don't panic. Uh, I'm not going to do the stats this morning. Apparently they didn't go down so well last time. My maths wasn't quite there. So I'll let you work out the different combinations of how much you could read a day and get how many times you could read them in eight weeks. Uh, let me just say this. If you just read one psalm a day, you'll get there and you'll massively benefit. We've got three aims and really three headings this morning for us as we go through this first section of the psalms. As I say, we're not going to be reading the whole of the psalms, but because it's our first RBT in this book, I want to explain first why reading the psalms is so helpful and so important. And so I'm calling the first heading the soundtrack of the Christian life. Then I'm going to give us some tools that will help us as we read a big chunk of biblical poetry. And we're going to call that heading, How to Read a Psalm. And finally, we'll zoom in and we'll focus on just some of the big themes in Psalms 1 to 41. And I'm calling that heading, The Big Themes. Uh, Now, this morning, we are going to sort of uh, jump around the Psalms quite a bit. And hopefully, uh, they're going to come up on the screen behind us. I've set Martha quite a task. So... um, Support her, forgive her if she gets it wrong. I'm sure she'll do brilliantly. First up then, first heading of this morning, the soundtrack of the Christian life. Uh, Now I'm guessing a good number of us at some point in our lives have put together a playlist or a compilation CD or some kind of mixtape for the older ones amongst us, if you know what I'm talking about. And I think you can tell a lot about people by looking at their playlists. I remember making numerous mixtapes as a teenager and I'd sit maybe in the, back car on a long, in the back of the car on a long journey or walk my way to school with Walkman in hand, uh, earphones over my ears, soaking up what I like to think was the soundtrack of my life. And I'm not going to tell you this morning what bands and songs I was listening to. I've probably forgotten about half of them and the other half were a real mixed bag. But for better or for worse... These songs felt like my soundtrack as a teenager. At the time, I felt like they summed up how I thought and felt about the world. And maybe you were the same. But fast forward to today, sat here this morning, what would you say is now the daily soundtrack of your life? And I'm not, I stress, talking here primarily about what music we listen to, 
But what sums up how you think and feel about yourself, about God, and about life in this world? Are we driven just by the, the, the beat of our culture, the values, the priorities, the ideals, and the idols of the world around us? Or do we experience each day and go through each day seeing and even singing about life through the lens of God's word? Now, if we'd like it to be more of the second, but we fear it might be more of the first, the Psalms are here to help us. The word Psalms means songs of praise, but not the TV program. And the book of Psalms is like God's mixtape for the Christian life. It's a divinely inspired playlist of 150 poems, songs and prayers drawn together from many different periods in Israel's history. At least 73 of them are written by King David, uh, but other contributors include Moses, Solomon, Asaph, and the sons of Korah. And at some point in Israel's history, these ancient poems were gathered together and deliberately organized into one book to fulfill a very specific purpose, to be God's mixtape, his soundtrack for his people. And ever since then, down through the centuries of church history, the book of Psalms has occupied a very special place in the heart of God's people. For many people still today, if they could only take one book of the Bible with them onto a desert island, they'd choose the book of Psalms. But why are the Psalms so important? Why are they the go-to soundtrack for the Christian life? I want to give three short reasons as we think about the Psalms as a soundtrack. First of all, the Psalms are like a mini-Bible. Uh, amazingly, two-thirds of the Old Testament quotes that you find in the New Testament are from the book of Psalms. The Psalms are where the apostles go most often to prove a point about Jesus. For one period in church history, the advice actually given to new Christians was to first go and read the Psalms and only then go and start on the Gospels. And there was a time when you couldn't become a pastor unless you could recite the entire book of Psalms. Moving on. <laughs> now, this might all seem a bit extreme to us, but it's perhaps because we've lost sight today of what Christians have actually known down the ages that the book of Psalms is really the, book, uh, really the Bible in miniature. It's a mini Bible. First of all, the Psalms addresses every old, uh, major Old Testament event. Creation, the fall, God's covenant with Abraham, the exodus, the giving of the law, the conquest of the promised land, God's covenant with David, the temple, the exile, and the return to Jerusalem. It's all here in the book of Psalms. But the Psalms are also all about Jesus, repeatedly pointing forward to their ultimate fulfillment in him. As Martin Luther wrote, the Psalter ought to be a precious and beloved book, if for no other reason than this. It promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly and pictures his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom that it might well be called a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. So Luther believed quite rightly that the entire message of the Bible was summarized in a compressed form in this one little book, in this mini Bible. 
The second reason the Psalms are the number one soundtrack to the Christian life is that besides walking us through the whole biblical story, they are also a window into the human heart. The Psalms are a window into the human heart. Uh, Now, someone aspiring to be a poet today, and maybe there's someone here that's still aspiring to be a poet one day, they might, might find an isolated holiday cottage or a nice little cafe somewhere and day after day go there and write a collection of poems. But not so with the psalmists. The psalms are real-life poems written in the hustle and bustle, in the pleasures and pressures of everyday life. And because of that, they can walk us through the whole spectrum of human experience from the highest heights to the lowest lows, from exuberant joy to deepest despair. Calvin described the book of Psalms as an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here in the Psalms represented as in a mirror. It lays open all our inmost thoughts and affections. Actually, reading the Psalms reminds us as well that God knows us even better than we know ourselves. Perhaps you find that sometimes you really can't make sense of the multitude of thoughts and feelings and emotions that are churning away in your heart on the inside. Perhaps you just can't make sense of what's going on inside you from moment to moment. But God can. And in the Psalms, he shows us that Not only does he get our hearts, he he understands them, but he offers to put words on our lips to help us tell him what we're feeling. The Psalms give us words of joy, sorrow, praise and lament, thanksgiving and grief, all to lay before God in prayer. As Luther writes again, everyone in whatever situation he may be finds in that situation psalms and words that fit his case that suit him as if they were put there just for his sake so that he could not put it better himself it's why when you when you turn to the book of psalms to pray you can quickly feel like you've been given a newfound freedom to truly know yourself and to pour out your heart to god it's a it's a really liberating book to be in the psalms also don't just capture our internal human experience, uh, they also touch on every kind of external human experience too. They touch on every kind of trial or trouble or temptation that we might come across living as we do in this world. Wherever we are in life, we can find ourselves and our circumstances in this book. It's a prayer book for every believer. And the third reason the Psalms are the number one soundtrack for the Christian life is that they offer a remedy for every need. The Psalms offer a remedy for every need. In so many of the Psalms, and especially in Psalms 1 to 41, while the psalmist often begins by describing his heartache and his need, he almost always ends by confidently describing the remedy. Each time, he's like an expert pharmacist. You know when you go into the chemist and maybe they're making up your prescription? The psalmist is like that. He's an expert pharmacist pharmacist, uh, taking 
the medicine of truth, precisely selecting what we need to perfectly meet our need. The Psalms are like a directory of medicines for the soul. Athanasius once said, whatever your particular need, learn the way to remedy your ill in the Psalms. And as the psalmist realizes again and again, and we'll see this if we don't know it already as we read the Psalms, the ultimate remedy for all of our needs is found in God. First, to see God again in his character and his promises, his mighty works, his steadfast love and mercy, and then to run to him for refuge and rescue because he hears us, loves us, and cares for us. God is never just some abstract theological idea in the book of Psalms. He is personal and he's immediate and he is with us. One writer, Jeffrey Kranz, says, The Psalms show us that no matter what we go through, there is a God who listens to those who call on him. He walks beside us, goes before us, encamps around us, reigns above us, and dwells among us. I love that. Personally, there's no other book in all of the Bible that I, and I know many of you, have found more helpful and hope-giving in the ups and downs of life than the book of Psalms. So take all of these things together. In this book, we have the Bible in all of its parts, an expression of every human emotion, counsel for every need, and also inspiration for worship whatever circumstance of life we might be. It's just a wonderful book. And we're very excited that we're going to be reading this together as a church in the coming weeks. Okay, secondly this morning, how do we read the Psalms? How to read the Psalms? I don't want to spend too long on this, but just to give a few pointers. The first thing you notice when you open the book of Psalms is that it's a book of poetry. Now, maybe you love the Psalms already and you read them often, Or maybe you find them a bit of a struggle. And perhaps in part, if you find them a struggle, it's precisely because they're poetry that you and them don't so much get along. Perhaps you only get halfway through Psalm 1 before you're crying out to God, Oh Lord, why poetry? It's a really good question, so we'll make it a little point, why poetry? Let me me answer that question. Amazingly, about one half of the Old Testament is written in poetry rather than prose. And God has chosen to speak to us so often in poetry for good reasons. Here's just two, I think, two of the biggest reasons, perhaps, why poetry. First, because poetry speaks to both the head and the heart. Stephen Jenkins, um, one of the lecturers on the union course that we host in the offices, uh, every week, He's, he says this, God is a God of both the head and the heart, and he has made us the same. With his word, God, through the biblical authors, doesn't merely want to tell us things, but to do things to us as we read. He doesn't merely want to convey information. He wants to change us as a result. And he gives us poetry to help the truth Make the journey down from our head to our heart, to stir our affections, to be moved deeply by the truth. The Psalms and biblical poetry are meant to engage our imagination. And through our imagination, they can fire up all of our senses 
and so have a much bigger impact on us, which means we shouldn't simply read the Psalms like they're just some kind of puzzle waited to be decoded. Like it would be much simpler if we just had a literal, non-poetic version of the Psalms. No, instead, the, the Psalms and their poetry are meant to make us slow down and pay more attention, not only to what the author is saying, but to why he's, uh, to how and the way that he's saying it. They're not just individual little units of truth, each psalm, meant to be drunk down in great glugs like a, just a plain glass of water. They are to be sipped like a fine wine, slowly and carefully as we take in the, the sort of the heady mix of flavors. Or to use another picture, it's like the biblical poets hold up biblical truth like it's a, a diamond caught in a sunbeam, slowly turning it this way and that so that we can admire it from all sorts of different angles. But we have to be willing to sit still long enough to see its beauty for ourselves. So poetry speaks to both the head and the heart. And the second big reason I think that we have so much poetry in the Bible is that poetry helps us remember Here's one of the main reasons, actually, why I think in times gone by, new believers would have been encouraged, as I said earlier, to start by reading the Psalms before going on to the Gospels. It's because as they began to read and maybe even sing the poetry of the Psalms, they'd naturally start to memorize them, just like we tend to learn songs quicker than we uh, just learn a speech or a page of text that we've got. And then having memorized them, or having memorized at least some of them and hidden them in their hearts, when they went about their day uh, working in the fields, pottering around at home, they would be able to vividly recall them to mind and meditate on God's word wherever they went, just as Psalm 1 tells us to do. And in fact, if they were singing them together as a church as well, even those who were illiterate, those, those men and women that couldn't read, would ultimately have a miniature Bible memorized to carry around with them day to day simply by knowing the psalms so that's that's at least some way to answering the question of why poetry the second thing it's helpful to know when we come to read the psalms is a little bit about how hebrew poetry works because of course the psalms are originally originally written in hebrew so let's talk about hebrew poetry and you have to trust me on this okay this is much more fascinating and helpful than it might first sound when I just say Hebrew poetry. I know that's not quite what you came to church for today, but bear with me. Uh, most of us, I think, can remember a poem or two, even if we're not so into poetry, uh, and especially the ones we learned in childhood. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Everyone know that one? Great. It's about the only one I remember, but not the most profound poetry, but it, it does illustrate the fact, actually, that rhyming words like star and are are the kind of the, the basic building blocks of a lot of English poetry, but not so with the poetry of the Bible. Hebrew poetry doesn't rely on rhyming words to make it poetic, which is actually wonderful news, because if it relied on rhyming words, then as soon as you translate it into another language, it would just lose all of its beauty. But in God's good providence, Hebrew poetry relies on something different entirely. It relies on rhyming ideas. Now, what do I mean by rhyming ideas? Well, Hebrew poetry uses something called parallelism. Don't worry about the term, but let me just give you a few examples. 
This will probably seem really obvious as we start to look at a couple of examples. Most of these as well are from Psalm 1 to 41, just because that's where we're going to be spending our time this month. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, is a, let's look it up on the screen in a moment, is a nice simple example of this thing called parallelism, where the same thought is repeated twice, just in slightly different words. So, Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell with therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, hopefully you can see how the, the ideas in the first half of each verse parallel the ideas in the second half of each verse. The earth is almost the same, that's synonymous with the world, and the seas is very similar to the rivers. So in each verse, an idea is being shared twice, but in slightly different words. Psalm 18, verse 4 is another example. The cords of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction assailed me he's saying the same thing twice but by doing so in slightly different ways he's just adding richness and depth and beauty to what he's saying and that's a big part of how the psalms work now there are a few variations on it and i'll just mention two uh, quite common ones we've just seen where the second line almost mirrors the first but sometimes the second line will make a comparison with the first so psalm 42 verse 1 as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And finally, thirdly, sometimes the second line will contrast with the first. So look out for these. Uh, Psalm 1, verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 18, 27, For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And Psalm 34, verse 1, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, I don't know, it might all sound a little bit complicated. It's really not something we need to memorize. But what's helpful to remember is just that the psalmists often express their thoughts and emotions by using these parallel ideas. Uh, and in our modern Bibles, with the way things are kind of broken down nicely and put into little couplets and separate lines, we can see quite easily those parallel rhyming thoughts as we read through the psalms. And once you get used to it, as I'm sure many of us already are, then you start to see it all over the psalms. And it quickly, I think, becomes even more satisfying and even more helpful than just plain old rhyming words. Okay, so there we go. And now let's have a think about, thirdly and finally, the big themes. First of all here, not everyone realizes that the Psalms are actually split into five books. And you can find the headings as you work your way through the Psalms in your Bible. And book one runs from Psalms 1 to 41. And to begin at the very beginning, there is an introduction. Psalms 1 and 2 form together this introduction to book 1 of the Psalms. Psalm 1 invites us to meditate on the law of the Lord. And in a sense, the whole of the rest of the book of Psalms uh, helps us to do just that, to richly meditate on God's law and God's word. And Psalm 1 then makes a double promise as well, that the one who meditates on God's word will be blessed. 
But the one who spurns and rejects God's word will perish. Psalm 2, so sort of in the pair, part of the introduction, Psalm 2 then tells us why these two outcomes, these two opposing promises, are both inescapably true. Because, according to Psalm 2, God is king. And one day his son will reign on the throne, establishing God's perfect rule over the world. And when the son comes to reign, he will defeat evil and rebellion wherever he finds it. So in 2 verse 9 we read, he'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But he'll also provide blessing and life for, 2 verse 12, all who take refuge in him. So together, Psalms 1 and 2 are the the introduction and like the gateway into the rest of the book. But there's also a conclusion to book 1 as well, and that's at the end of Psalm 41 in verse 13, where we read, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting Amen and Amen. It's what we call a doxology. It's an exaltation and an expression of praise to God. And actually, each of the other four books in the Psalms all end with a very similar outburst of praise. All of which shows us that the ultimate purpose of the Psalms in each and every one of the five books is to help us to learn to worship and praise God in every circumstance of life. They're there to teach us, to equip us, to help us to praise God in every circumstance of life. But here's a question we might find ourselves asking. What if we find it difficult to worship God when times are especially hard? What if we find praise easier when things are going well for us, but it feels near impossible for us to praise him when, for instance, our bodies are racked with pain or our thoughts are consumed by worry or our souls are weighed down with loneliness or our hearts are overwhelmed with fears what then how then can we praise him well here is where i think book one especially steps in to help us most of psalms 3 to 41 are written by king david and most of them are personal prayers that arose out of his most his own most difficult life experiences. David endured many times of hardship in his life, especially earlier on in his reign. And he was betrayed by friends and family. He was fleeing for his life. He was feeling abandoned. He was helpless and alone. And in these Psalms, he just repeatedly opens his heart to God, describing with great honesty the fears and anxieties that grip his heart, his loneliness, his desperation, his deepest regrets, his, his uh, deepest sorrows. And yet in the darkest of times, sometimes in the darkest of psalms, he returns again and again to express his faith and his confidence in God, his rock and his redeemer. He returns again and again in the midst of all of this to offer praise to God. And in so doing, he shows us how we too can pray and praise God even in the hardest of times. David is like a prayer coach, teaching us how to pray and teaching us how to remember the God who is with us even in the worst times. 
Now, the best way really to experience this for ourselves is to go away and to begin to read them and even pray them. And of course, that's what we're going to be doing. But before we finish this morning, I just want to draw our attention to some of the more prominent themes, the the big repeated themes that we're going to come across and encounter as we read these psalms over the coming eight weeks or so. I just want to signpost some of these so that we know what's coming when we go home and read. So here are a few, and again, they'll all come up on the screen as we go. Firstly, we'll find sobering descriptions of the godless and the wicked. In many of these psalms, David paints a vivid picture of his enemies and their sin. He tells us that they're liars, deniers of truth, boastful and violent. Chapter 5, verse 9, he says, There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave, and they flatter with their tongue. Tells us that they're rebels against God. 5 verse 10, he tells us there's no fear of God before their eyes. 36 verse 1. Now many of these psalms are going to draw a strong dividing line between the righteous and the wicked. And certainly some of what divides these two groups is is to do with outward behavior. But at root, what it really comes down to is allegiances. This is not about perfectly good people versus perfectly bad people. It's not about some who are sinners and some who aren't. This is about those who go on denying and opposing God on the one hand and those who humble themselves before him and trust him on the other. The second thing we'll see are heartfelt expressions of sorrow, depression and fear. Uh, I mentioned already just about how open David is about his fears and his troubles with God. But listen here to just one particular example of of his honesty in prayer. Psalm 6 from verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And one of the, one of the I think, the most helpful things to recognize in these passages is how David's pain and fear drives him closer to God, not further away. This is so important for us when we're, when we're struggling and we're in pain. These things drive David closer to God, not further away. Now, we might not have human enemies, I hope, right now, who are literally hunting us down and out to harm us and kill us. But we do still live with a multitude of fears each day. Whether it be fears about financial troubles, fears about growing old, fears about loved ones not being saved, fears of being a bad parent, fears of being alone and fears of viruses, sickness, and death. Which of us hasn't experienced some twinge of anxiety over the last few weeks over the whole coronavirus? Who of us could honestly say we have no fears about it at all, even if we're keeping those fears in check and we're we're not letting them rule us? The Bible agrees that fears are everywhere. And the Psalms assume that we all wrestle with fear. But it's in David's wrestling with his own fears 
in prayer that we find some of the very best words of comfort and reassurance for people that are living in a fragile and broken world where things like the coronavirus exist and spread. We need to be reminded that there is no better place for troubled, anxious souls to turn than to the Lord. We need to hear again that God is with us. We need to be reminded that nothing in life or death can possibly separate us. We need to hear our shepherds saying, do not be afraid. And that's what we're going to find as we read through Psalm, uh, the book one of the Psalms together. This is perhaps very timely for us. Thirdly, we'll find many confessions of personal sin. David is very much aware that rescue from violent people and deadly viruses, if he knew what they were at the time, were not his most pressing needs. He knows that the deadliest danger that threatens him is not outside him, but inside him. His greatest enemy is within, in his own iniquities and sin. And so he frequently recognizes and confesses his sin. Uh, Psalm 38, verses 3 and 4, he says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. And then verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. So confessions of sin. And then the next thing we'll find, we'll find him repeating are prayers to be delivered and saved. David repeatedly calls out to God to save him. And he frequently has these two things in mind that he's asking God to save him from. The first are his enemies. Those People and things that threaten to harm him and kill him. So chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. He prays, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. He asks God to be his refuge from these external dangers and troubles. But the second thing he asks God to save him from is actually... God himself. Chapter 6, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He recognizes that God is holy and he is not. And so he asks God to be merciful and gracious. To not forsake him or cut him off for his sin, but to be the God of his salvation. Next. We also encounter many wonderful reminders of God's steadfast love and mercy. It's like with every cry that David makes to God to save him, he also reminds himself of who God is, his name and his character and his covenant and his promises. He knows that, chapter 3, verse 8, he knows that salvation belongs to the Lord. He knows that his hope is not in himself, but in God's immeasurable, unfailing love. 25 verses 6 to 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. According, so remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And in Psalm 6 verse 4, he simply prays, Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. 
David is never self-righteous, never trusting in his own good merits of which he knows he is sorely lacking. But he calls on God as the author of his righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 1. In this wonderful foreshadowing of the gospel to come, in, in which Christ now clothes every believer in his perfect, spotless righteousness. David prays to the God of his righteousness. And we'll also find many celebrations of the greatness and glory of God's. Scattered throughout book one are, are several psalms. They keep cropping up that don't necessarily mention trials and difficulties, but they focus solely on God's greatness and glory. Uh, but they're not random diversions from all of the psalms around them by any means. They're well-placed and they're timely reminders of the power of the God whom David is choosing to trust and follow. Psalms like Psalm 8, 19, Psalm 24, Psalm 29 are beautiful reminders of God's majesty and might, his justice, his mercy, and the goodness of his law. And then next, seventhly, if you're keeping up, we'll read repeatedly of God hearing and answering David's prayers. David's prayers do not go unanswered. And he recollects, he marks, he sticks a pin in every time God hears and answers him. Psalm 4 verse 3, the Lord hears when I call to him. Psalm 3 verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Psalm 40 verses 1 to 3, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Eighthly and penultimately, we'll see the wonderful fruit of taking refuge in God. The wonderful fruit of taking refuge in God. First, we'll see that taking refuge in God dispels David's fear, makes his fear run away. Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then perhaps some of the most loved verses of all in the Psalms. Psalm 23 verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Taking refuge in God makes David's fears run away. Taking refuge in God brings courage. Psalm 27 verse 14. It allows David to sleep in peace. Psalm 4 verse 8. Taking refuge in God even restores David's joy and helps him to praise. And ninthly and finally, we will find as we read these psalms, signposts that point us to Jesus. Now the whole Bible is, of course, ultimately about Jesus. But perhaps more than any other book in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms clearly anticipates his coming. Psalm 2 
we looked at a little bit earlier on is, of course, like a direct promise, a direct prophecy about the Messiah who will come to rule as the divine king over the nations. And there are, other, and there are a few more kind of really clear pointers to the saviour that's coming throughout these psalms. Then there are more subtle pointers to Jesus throughout book one, found in both David's and Jesus's identity as, a, as the suffering king. In the New Testament, we see Jesus taking upon his own lips the words of, of many of these psalms. Uh, two examples, especially Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, of course, he cried out at the cross and psalm 31 verse 5 just as jesus died into your hand i commit my spirit many of david's prayers ultimately become jesus's prayers but there's one more way that every single one of these 41 psalms finds their ultimate fulfillment in jesus and that is that jesus is the ultimate answer to all of the heartfelt prayers of god's people you hear that? Jesus is the ultimate answer to all of the prayers of God's people. I want to read this just as we're coming to an end from the Gospel Transformation Bible. Couldn't capture it better than this. Jesus is God's definitive answer to the cries of his people. Jesus provides the forgiveness cried out for. Jesus underwent the ultimate lament, crying out as he was forsaken by the Father on the cross so that we need not lament separation from God. Jesus' substitutionary work gives us supreme reason to praise God and to thank him. Jesus perfectly lived out God's law so that we lawbreakers can be exonerated freely and then change from the inside out so that we can delight in God's law truly. Looking to Jesus, we have full confidence Full cause for confidence in God. If God did not spare his own son, what can we ever possibly lack? And Jesus is himself the fulfillment of all God's ways with his people. Reading the Psalms mindful of Jesus is not a clever way to read this book of the Bible, nor is it one way to do so among others. It is the way. A gospel lens to reading the Psalms is how Jesus himself teaches us to read them. As you read this portion of God's word, make these prayers to God your own and consider the ways these psalms are good news to us, expressing the full range of our emotions and ultimately bringing our minds to rest on the finished work of Christ on behalf of sinners. Now I started out by asking you about your favourite mixtape, the, the soundtrack of your life. The Psalms are the ultimate Christian mixtape, a playlist for our souls as we journey through life, following our Saviour in the midst of a broken and fallen world. Let's follow Christians down the ages and make the Psalms our number one Christian mixtape over the next eight weeks and beyond. Let's right now set book one on repeat and as we read and listen let's also join the psalmist in speaking the words of the psalms and even singing the words of the psalms back to god in praise and prayer and as we do so we can anticipate the blessing of being like a tree planted by streams of water of being even those who walk through the valley of the shadow of death and yet fear no evil because we know that the 
Lord, our shepherd, is with us. He is a rock of refuge, as David reminds us, a, a refuge from every threat. And in Christ, he has made himself the loving redeemer of our souls. Let's pray.